so I've had a number of people already this morning comment uh, on my sport coat. Um, uh, some of you are wondering, you know, what is he wearing? Uh, this, listen, I think I look pretty good. So, um, but uh, this is officially now my Dallas Cowboys colored themed sport coat. In case you don't know, they are playing tomorrow, and as much as it pains me to admit it, I think they're going to need all the hope they can get. So uh, this is my prayer jacket for the Dallas Cowboys this morning. But uh, speaking of prayers, listen, two weeks ago I made a deal with you that if you submit to me a word for 2023, a word that it's your prayer that God would work in your heart and in your life over the course of this year. The deal I made with you is that if you send that word to me, if you email it to me, jot it down on a piece of paper, um, my end of the deal, the bargain, is that I will be praying for you throughout the course of 2023. And uh, the offer is still on the table, by the way. Uh, if you've not submitted a word to me and you want to, uh, go ahead and do that. And uh, thus far, I've upheld my end of the bargain. Uh, those of you who have submitted a word to me, and many of you have, it's been really my delight. I've been looking forward to it every day uh, to go down the list and to pray specifically for you that God would work those words into your heart and into your life over the course of the year. But uh, as I've been praying through that list, I'm reminded yet again of the reality that I don't really understand how prayer works. To be honest with you, I hope you don't expect me to untangle that riddle of how God's sovereignty and human freedom work together in this thing we call prayer. I just don't really understand how prayer works, but I am convinced that prayer does work. And I'm convinced that prayer is a very important part of the Christian life. And as we open up our Bibles to John chapter 17, we are invited into an amazing prayer of Jesus, where Jesus, in the moments leading up to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will be betrayed, where he will be arrested, well, he will be led away to be unjustly tried and ultimately crucified on a cross for you and for me. We're invited here in this chapter to listen in on a prayer between the divine Son of God and his Father in heaven. And there on your outline, you can see that this prayer of Jesus really has three parts to it. And Jesus has a different word that he prays in each of these sections. Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And he ultimately prays for believers of all time. And the word that Jesus prays for himself is glory. The words that Jesus prays for his disciples our protection and purity. And the word that Jesus prays over believers of all time is unity. So open your Bible with me to John chapter 17 as we take a look truly at the greatest prayer ever prayed here in John chapter 17. First look at number one on your outline. Jesus prays glory to God, glory to himself and to the Father. John chapter 17, notice verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, 
He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. As chapter 17 begins, John tells us that Jesus at this point lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays. And Jesus here in this prayer, as he addresses his Father in heaven, he says, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Now, if you were to flip back to John chapter 1 and you were to just start reading all throughout the Gospel of John, you would see that this phrase, the hour, is repeated over and over again in the Gospel of John. And over and over again, up to this point, John tells us that Jesus' hour had not yet come. But now, here in John chapter 17, the hour has come. This is the hour leading up to the greatest event of all of history. This is the hour describing the moment humanity has been waiting for since Adam's disobedience in the garden. This is the hour where Jesus is going to lay down his life for you and for me. And finally, here in John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus, lifting his eyes up to heaven, says, Father, the hour has come. And notice Jesus' request. What Jesus prays for himself here in this hour. He says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The one word that's repeated in this first section where Jesus prays for himself, it's that word glorify. The word glorify means to praise or to honor, to enhance one's reputation, to clothe in splendor and majesty. And Jesus' prayer in this hour is that the Father would glorify him. I really love the words of D.A. Carson, who says this petition, Jesus asks the Father to reverse the self-emptying entailed in his incarnation, to restore him to the splendor that he shared with the Father before the world began. When Jesus took on flesh, in other words, his glory was veiled. He wasn't seen for who he really is, the Lord of all creation the Lord of glory. His glory up to this point has been veiled, it's been hidden, but now he prays that his glory would be made known once again, the same glory that he shared with the Father before the world began. And notice in verse 2, Jesus connects this idea of him being glorified with his authority. He says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. The idea of Jesus' glory being made known, Jesus praying for his glory to be revealed, is here connected to his authority. His authority over all flesh. The Apostle Paul tells us that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day everyone will recognize who this King of glory is. But the second thing I want you to notice here in verse 2 is Jesus also specifically mentions 
This idea of eternal life. He is, God has given him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Jesus, the one who has authority over all flesh, also has the authority to give eternal life. And in verse 3, we see what eternal life is. Notice verse 3. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus and Jesus alone has authority over all flesh. Jesus and Jesus alone has authority to grant eternal life. And here he describes what eternal life is. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That word for know really describes a relational intimate knowledge. Eternal life is a relationship between us sinners and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Jesus describes eternal life as this relationship of intimacy between people and a holy God. I also want you to notice here that Jesus describes this relationship between sinful people and a holy God as eternal, not temporary. See, some people think that eternal life just refers to life that goes on forever and ever. But to tell you the truth, all people are going to live forever and ever. But only some, only those whom the Father has given will live eternally in relationship with the holy God. Everyone will live eternally, either in heaven or in hell, but to receive eternal life is to enter into this intimate relationship, eternal relationship between God and us. The differentiating factor is ultimately what you do with Jesus, what you believe about him. And so I want to pause here as I do every week and let me just ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? This man who moments before the cross prays that they may know you, that we would know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. What do you believe about this man? Do you believe that on the cross he laid down his life in your place and my place and paid the penalty for your sin? That it's only through this man that you have an eternal relationship with the holy God. And I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation, if you've never trusted in him, to right where you are, right where you're seated, here in this room or online, to put your faith, your trust in the only one who has the authority over all flesh, the only one who has authority to give eternal life, the only one who has authority to forgive sin. If you've not trusted in him, I'd invite you to do that right now. But here in this prayer, as Jesus is about to face the cross, the one word that he prays for himself is the word glory. Look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus here, in this final part of his prayer to God the Father on his own behalf, he 
see, we see that word glorify yet again. He's praying that God would glorify him with the glory he shared with the Father before the world was. And Jesus' request that the Father would glorify him is connected to this idea that he accomplished the work that he had, that the Father had given to him. I remember years ago sitting in a class with Dr. Pentecost on the Upper Room Discourse, and uh, he made it very clear to us students that the, the work Jesus accomplished ultimately was the work of revealing the Father, of making the Father known. Now, the Father's love for us will be demonstrated on the cross, but even before the cross, Jesus can say, I've accomplished the work which you, Father, have sent me to do. Jesus has revealed the Father. He has shown the world who the Father really is. And so having accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do, Jesus now prays that his glory, his glory that was veiled, would now be made known once again. Jesus prays for glory for himself. And as we look at number two on your outline, Jesus also prays for his disciples. He prays two words over his disciples. He prays for their protection and he prays for their purity. Let's take a look at number two on your outline. Let me read for you John chapter 16, starting with verses six through eight. Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They are yours, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Let's pause right here. Now, before Jesus prays for the protection and purity of the disciples... He first, in this prayer to his father, describes the disciples. And when you look at these verses and the words that Jesus uses here to describe these disciples, it's amazing. I want you to look again and see in these three verses, verses 6, 7, and 8, the words Jesus uses to describe these men. He says, they have kept your word. Notice at the end of verse 6. He says in verse 7, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. He says in verse 8 of God's words that Jesus gave to them, they received them. And he says, they truly understood that I came forth from you. And he says, they believed that you sent me. Can I ask you a question? If you were describing Jesus' disciples up to this point, what are the words you would use? These are not the words I would use to describe Jesus' disciples up to this point. If I were Jesus praying for the disciples, I would say, Father, these men are yours. You can keep them. I don't want them. <laughs> they have consistently misunderstood what I've said. They've not really obeyed me. They've not followed my words. They've not glorified me. These guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. You can have them back. Give me someone new. But that's not what Jesus says here. 
And in fact, notice in the next verses, he continues, verses 9 and 10, he says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. Notice, they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. It's amazing, the words, the phrases Jesus uses to describe these men. But here's the encouragement. Jesus sees already not who these men are, but who they will become. Jesus sees through the same eyes as God the Father when he looks on us. He sees us not in our sin, but he sees us with the righteousness that he's imputed now onto our account. Even now, God the Father and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, when they look on us, they see us no longer as who we were, but as who we are in Christ. He sees us as those who have been chosen, redeemed, reconciled, made new, who glorify him through our lives. These are incredibly encouraging verses. So after describing these men, Jesus now prays for them, and he prays really two things for them. He prays for their protection, and he prays for their purity. Let's take a look first at Jesus' prayer for their protection. Notice verse 11. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given to me. I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak to you in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as, as I am not of the world." I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Throughout the Upper Room Discourse, we've seen Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure. He's been telling them over and over again, listen guys, it's time for me to go. But I'm going to leave you here in this world, and the world is going to hate you. The world is going to hate you because the world has hated me. Earlier in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus said he promised to send the Holy Spirit who would be their comforter, their advocate, as they followed Jesus in a fallen world, as they suffered for following Jesus in a fallen world. And here Jesus prays that God the Father would protect them. That as they follow Jesus in a fallen world, and notice again verse 14, I have given them your word, the world has hated them because they're not of the world. They're not of the world, and the world is going to hate them, and so Jesus prays for their protection. I want you to notice, though, that Jesus does not pray that they would be safe, but they would be secure. In other words, he doesn't pray that their life would be easy, but even in the midst of living in a world that hates them, they would be protected. God's plan, and we see this in the words of Jesus here, is not that God the Father would take them out of the world, but he would protect them even in the midst of the world. 
Jesus, during his ministry, protected and guarded the disciples. We see that there in verse 12. He protected every single one of them except for Judas, who betrayed him, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But here Jesus prays for the protection of the disciples as they follow him in a fallen world. To summarize Jesus' words here, I love what D.A. Carson says. He says, the Christian's task is not to be withdrawn from the world, nor to be confused with the world, but to remain in the world, maintaining witness to the truth and absorbing all the malice that the world can muster, being protected by the Father himself in response to the prayer of Jesus. So here Jesus, knowing that he's going to leave his disciples, that he's going to leave them in a world that hates them, he asks God the Father for protection over them. The second word that Jesus prays here for his disciples is the word purity. Notice verses 17 through 19. Jesus prays to God the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. Now, the repeated word here in these verses is that word sanctify. The word sanctify means to set apart for special use. It's related to the idea of holiness. And here Jesus is praying that his disciples, as he leaves them in a world, a world that's going to hate them, he prays that God would sanctify them, that he would set them apart, that he would make them distinct from the world. The world that hates them. Why? Why would God ask that as he leaves his disciples in this world that hates them, that they would be set apart from the world, that they would be distinct from the world, that their holiness, their conduct, their way of life would be so much different from the world? I want you to notice again verse 18. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. See, the way a Christian lives, their conduct, their sanctification, their purity, is a witness to the world. It's part of their mission in the world, to be the salt and light. The disciples are being sent into the world so that they can continue to do the work that Jesus did, to reveal the Father to the world and to be a light in the midst of darkness. And so Jesus here prays for their purity, for their sanctification, for their holiness. To summarize number two on your outline, Jesus prays over his disciples both their protection and their purity. But I want you to take note of verse 17 one more time. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. See, another big word here in Jesus' prayer for his disciples in their protection and in their purity is this idea of truth. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus says. Your word is truth. What was interesting as I studied this passage this week, it hit me that The truth 
and the disciples' stance on the truth is what is going to cause them to need protection from the fallen world because the world hates the truth. And yet, paradoxically, at the same time, it's the disciples' stance on the truth that is the means of purity and sanctification in their life. It's their insistence upon the truth of God's word. Your word is truth that will lead both to the world hating them and thus their need for protection and will also be the means by which God brings about purity and sanctification in their life. So Jesus prays for protection and purity for his disciples and I believe by extension for you and for me as well. And speaking of you and me, let's see what Jesus prays for us as we look at number three on your outline. John chapter 17, let me begin by reading verses 20 and 21. Jesus prays here in verses 20 and 21, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, his disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So here now Jesus shifts his attention not on himself, no longer on his disciples, but now to all believers of all time. Jesus knows that his mission will be accomplished. He knows that these men, these disciples, after he is raised from the dead, he knows that he'll send forth his spirit and these apostles will travel around the world preaching the good news of the gospel that people everywhere will be converted and the church will continue to grow. And so Jesus now focuses in on believers of all time who will come to faith through the ministry of these men. In other words, here in these verses, Jesus prays for you and for me. He prays for us here this morning. And notice the word that Jesus prays over you and me. It's unity. Again, verse 21, Jesus prays that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And notice verses 22, uh, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one. Just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. To summarize Jesus' word, his prayer for us in one word, it's unity. Now unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Jesus doesn't expect us all to look the same, to walk the same, to talk the same, to dress the same. I wish you could all dress like me. Uh, But that's not Jesus' prayer. Jesus doesn't pray for uniformity, but he prays for unity. And even in the context of a very diverse church, as the gospel spreads from nation to nation, from people to people, they can still be united So specifically, what does Jesus mean when he prays for unity? I think if you were to take a step back and look at 
Everything Jesus has taught in the upper room discourse and even larger than that in the Gospel of John and the Gospels themselves, throughout this section of Scripture in the upper room discourse, John 13 through 17, Jesus has been praying that disciples would love one another. I think one of the aspects Jesus has in mind when he prays for unity is that we would be united in our love for one another and in our love for God. That the world may know, notice Jesus says this, that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, verse 23, even as you have loved me. Jesus prays that we would be united in our love for one another. I think a second thing Jesus has in mind when he prays for our unity is a unity of our obedience to God and to his word. A unity in our obedience to God and to his word. Another reoccurring theme you see here throughout the upper room discourse and throughout the gospel of John is a commitment to the truth and obedience to God and to his word. A third aspect I would propose to you that I think Jesus has in mind when he prays for our unity is a united commitment to his mission of taking this gospel and spreading it to the ends of the earth. Throughout the gospel of John, throughout the upper room discourse, we see Jesus tell his disciples, I'm leaving, but you're here to stay. And they've been entrusted with this mission of taking this message, the truth of of who God is and his love for the world, and spreading it. So that's what I think Jesus has in mind when he prays for our unity, that we'd be united in our love for one another, that we would be united in our obedience to God and to his word, that we would be united in our commitment to God's mission. But it's amazing that here in the moments Leading up to the cross, the unity of disciples is on the forefront of Jesus' mind. I love the words of Dr. Pentecost, who said this. He said, our Lord's concern with the cross pales into insignificance in his concern that those who name the name of Christ should manifest the badge of discipleship that he has appointed to them. Specifically here, that badge of discipleship is our unity. I want you to notice again that Jesus describes this unity, this type of unity he's praying for over you and over me is the same unity that exists between the Father and the Son. Look again at verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Jesus wants the unity that exists among the Trinity to be reflected in the relationships among believers. I mean, this is incomprehensible. This is truly unimaginable. And yet I think by the power of the Holy Spirit and seen here in the prayer of Jesus, only the church can model the type of unity that our world is longing to see. You know, tomorrow's Martin Luther King Jr., day. And uh, the idea of unity is on a lot of people's minds, racial unity, but political unity, all kinds of unity. And I really believe it's only in the church, the church that's empowered by the very spirit of God, the church that Jesus prayed for here, that any type of unity is possible, but it's possible. 
And the world should look no further than to the church to see this unity on display. I love what Tony Evans says. He says, our effectiveness is determined by our unity. That's why Satan works so hard at causing division among Christians and within churches. And Warren Wearsby says, the lost world cannot see God, but they can see Christians. And what they see in us is what they will believe about God. If they see love and unity, they will believe that God is love. But if they see hatred and division, they will reject the message of the gospel. So Jesus here prays for believers of all time for unity. He also, by the way, prays for our glorification. Notice verse 24. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays that as he's going back to the Father, as his glory will be made known once again, that we, that we believers even here today would see his glory, that we would be with him where he is. In other words, Jesus prays for our ultimate glorification when we will be made like him. And then finally, look at verses 25 and 26 as Jesus concludes this prayer. He prays, O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus here, concluding his prayer, once again says that he had, he's made the Father known. He knows the Father. He knows the Father's love, and he prays these same, these same things for his disciples, that they would make the Father's name known, and that they would know the love of the Father in them. So this is John 17. You know, one of the things that entered my mind this week as I was studying this passage is I have no idea how John, when he wrote out the Gospel of John, how he knew what Jesus prayed. I don't know if Jesus prayed this out loud, and John heard it and later wrote it down. I don't know if the Holy Spirit revealed it to John, if Jesus himself revealed it to John. I don't know how John came to understand that this is what Jesus prayed moments before he would be taken away to the cross. I don't know how John came to know this information, but I'm really grateful that he did. Several scholars have labeled John chapter 17 as the holy of holy of the New Testament. The holy of holies of the New Testament. Other scholars have said that this is a prayer of consecration or a prayer of dedication. Jesus prays over all his disciples. And when you just take a step back from John chapter 17, one of the questions I have for you is, isn't it encouraging to know that nearly 2,000 years ago, as he faced the cross, Jesus prayed for you? I hope that thought doesn't escape you. As simple as that is, as we take a step back from John chapter 17, Jesus prayed specifically for you. 
And the, the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9 that he continues to make intercession. Chapter 7 continues to make intercession for you. But here's the thing. We have just scratched the surface here of John chapter 17. There is a whole lot more that could be said about Jesus' prayer to the Father recorded here. And so I'm actually going to do something I've never done before in eight years of preaching. I'm going to have us look at this exact same passage together again next week. Because this is just the tip of the iceberg. We've just kind of broken down the basic content of what Jesus prays. He prays for glory for himself, for protection and purity for his disciples. He prays um, for um, unity for you and for me. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. What we're going to do next week is we're going to look at John chapter 17 one more time, and this time we're going to look at some of the major doctrines that we see embedded in this amazing prayer. Doctrines like salvation, illumination, redemption, preservation, sanctification, mission, and glorification. See, this really is a remarkable prayer. It's the greatest prayer that's ever been prayed. And so I think it's worthy of even a little more attention. To close, Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, this much is sure. It is the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth. It's the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in Scripture. John 17 is certainly the holy of holies of the gospel record. And we must approach this chapter in a spirit of humility and worship. But then he says this, to think that we are privileged to listen in as God the Son convenes with his Father just as he is about to give his life as a ransom for sinners. And so let's listen in to this prayer one more time next week. Before now, would you pray with me? Father, we're truly in awe as we think about this incredible prayer of Jesus, that moments before the cross, he prayed for his own glory, that he would be made known, his glory would be made known. He prayed that, Father, you would protect and purify the disciples, and by extension us. And Jesus prayed that we, believers of all time, would be united and be a united presence in this fallen world. God, thank you for this prayer that we get to listen in as Jesus prayed to you. And God, I pray that as we go through this prayer uh, throughout this week, as we look at it again next week, I pray that the words Jesus spoke might be lived out in our lives today, not for our glory, but for yours and yours alone. Help us, Father, we pray and we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.